Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I want to welcome you to episode number 143 of ADHD for Smartass Women. So I'm going to just jump right in because we have so much to talk about today. Over the last month, I have learned so much more about various ADHD comorbidities that affect learning. And so I'd like to start by sharing my son Marcus's story. Now, I know over the past two years, I've talked about him quite a bit. When his friends ask what his mom does, he tells them she runs a small business. Many of them have ADHD, but he jokes about not wanting them to find this podcast. So, shh, his secret is safe with us, right? So Marcus is now 19, and he was first diagnosed with ADHD at 12. He's now just starting his sophomore year at NYU. And last spring, he decided to change majors from a music arts major to economics. If any of you have listened to episode 51 of this podcast, I interview him right after he was accepted to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. At the end of the episode, I play a rap song that he created as part of his application portfolio. It's all about the model minority, specifically Asian Americans, because, of course, he's a quarter Asian because I'm half Japanese. Marcus is a musician, which is how he got into NYU after attending three high schools in four years. He's also a mental math kid. He's just always been pretty good at math. He's one of those human calculator kind of kids, but he's also been consistently inconsistent in algebra and calculus, literally from A's to F's. And it really depends on who the teacher is. The prerequisite, however, to all of his economics classes was a calculus class. And he didn't want to have to worry about it this fall. And so he stayed for the summer in New York and he took that calculus class. You know, he wasn't really worried because he had done well his freshman year in school. So he figured as long as he was really organized and he worked really hard, he'd be okay, despite the fact that one semester of calculus was crammed into six weeks. So he studied hours every day. And unlike me, he doesn't struggle with executive functions, really. He's highly organized. He gets his work done early. He's never late, never late. It's, I'm sure, what really bothers me him about me. 
He has ADHD symptoms like physical hyperactivity. He can be funny and often inappropriate. He's a big talker once you get him going, but he can also be in his head a lot. But his executive functions, they tend to be fairly good. Well, that calculus class almost killed him. By the skin of his teeth and with the help of a tutor, he ended up passing somehow, so at least he doesn't have to retake it. But he was really frustrated because he worked so incredibly hard, you know? He'd often get the right answer, but he couldn't show his work the way his professor expected him to show it, and so she marked him down. In true ADHD fashion, he had to do things his way. So he was frustrated and he started researching and asking, like, what could it be? How could he work so hard and still struggle so much? He looked at visual processing disorder and he looked at dyslexia. He looked at dyscalculia. He came back and he said, and I think I mispronounced dyscalculia, dyscalculia, dyscalcula. I'm not sure. I hear it so many ways. I can't remember any anymore. So anyway, he came back and he said, I think it's a visual processing problem. You know, and as a child, he struggled to tell time, to tie his shoelaces. He reversed numbers and letters. He had really poor handwriting. He'd start writing on an envelope or a piece of paper, and his writing would be weirdly spaced. It would go off the page. It would start out large, and then it would end really small. And these were the symptoms that he found that were consistent with visual processing disorder. So I called Lori Peterson. Lori is the owner and director of Diagnostic Learning Services. She spends her days testing for ADHD and other learning challenges in children. And by the way, she's our guest today, and I'm going to introduce you to her in a second, or maybe a couple minutes. So I told Lori all about Marcus, and then I asked her, what is this visual processing disorder thing? Lori hosts a fantastic podcast called Let's Talk Learning Disabilities, and she sent me links to two podcasts, episodes six and seven. Seven was with a leading expert in visual processing disorder, Dr. Charles Sidlowski. And these podcasts, they made so much sense to me, so I sent them to Marcus. Marcus listened to them, and he saw himself in a lot of the stories. Lori then sent me several referrals for optometrists who are experts in visual processing in our area. Remember, I live right outside of San Francisco, and I don't know if I said it already, but Lori is in Texas. One of the names that she sent me, I recognized, and it turns out it was one of the first doctors that Marcus went to when he was nine. But, you know... I have ADHD, and I had totally forgotten about this. So he had actually gone through 10 weeks of visual training for eye tracking. This was years before he was diagnosed with ADHD the first time. So what ended up happening is Marcus flew home after that calculus class, and we got him tested. First, he was given a visual efficiency exam, which is a series of tests that evaluate his vision skills. Could he see clearly at a distance? What about when something was near? And that test indicated a few issues, and it was suggested of us that he get a visual perceptual skills assessment. So, of course, then he got that. A visual perceptual skills assessment looks at his brain's ability to make sense of what his eyes see. Can he find the patterns? Can he do puzzles? Can he see the hidden pictures or the differences between various objects and forms? So anyway, we drop him off to get tested for visual processing, And when we pick him up from this testing, he gets in the car and he tells us, it's dyslexia. I know it's dyslexia. Several days later, remember though, he wasn't being tested for dyslexia, right? He was being tested for visual processing issues. 
So several days later, we get his results. He was diagnosed with visual processing disorder, and it was recommended that he attend 12 weeks of vision therapy to focus on, this is what it said in the report, tracking for reading while continuing to improve his reading fluency and reading comprehension. In that assessment, there was no recommendation to get tested for dyslexia, even though there were tests that were part of this assessment that are used to test for dyslexia, and Marcus had done really poorly on those tests. So I asked the woman who tested him about dyslexia testing. Who does that? Can they recommend anyone? The woman who tested him, she didn't have any recommendations. She said that she would ask around. And that's when I thought about how even with Marcus's ADHD diagnosis at 12, and then having him retested again at 16, there's always been this hole in his learning that didn't make sense. I mean, the whole reason we had him re-diagnosed at 16 was because we just knew there was something more. And again, we thought it was dyslexia. How could he be so strong in math, but so inconsistent in algebra, calculus, and especially word problems? How could he be so passionate about learning? I mean, he was learning all the time on YouTube, Googling things, watching documentaries, but he would never pick up a book. He told me recently that he hadn't read any of the thousands of pages assigned to him in his freshman year at college. Instead, he figured out what he had to learn, and then he just found other online resources where he could learn what he needed to learn without having to read. How is it that he was smart and so ambitious and tried so hard and could talk about everything he had learned, but he struggled to show his knowledge on exams so his grades rarely reflected his mastery of a subject? When Marcus came out of that visual processing assessment and he said, it's dyslexia, I trusted that he was right because He'd always been right. After all, he'd been, he had diagnosed himself with ADHD at nine, many years before he was formally diagnosed. But I didn't know where to go. And honestly, I was getting kind of mad. That optometrist wanted him to take their vision therapy because that's what they offered. How could they not have had anyone to recommend for dyslexia testing? They just kept pushing what they offered. So what did I do? I called Lori Peterson again. I sent her everything. I sent her his previous testing, his visual processing tests, the current one that he had just taken and the one that he had when he was nine, his two neuropsych tests, the one when he was 12, and then the second one when he was 16. I sent her his grades from junior high school and on, his national test scores. And she came back and said, test him for dyslexia. And she started to recommend someone in our area. And I blurted out, oh, I need someone like you. I just wish you could do it. And that's when Lori said, I can do it. I had no idea. I don't know why I thought that in order to use a neuropsychoeducational evaluation for a school or a college, that it had to be done by an evaluator from the specific state that we were in. And while I'm sitting here saying this, it sounds so ridiculous because my son was in school in New York. Why would they care if the report came from California or New York or Texas, right? Anyway, Lori was the one who administered his third psychoeducational evaluation. And guess what? He was finally diagnosed with dyslexia. And you know what? He was happy. He has owned that diagnosis. Everything finally makes sense to him. In fact, the other day he told me, I think dyslexia is what's leading a lot of my issues. 
So the day after his diagnosis, he had already called NYU to talk to his counselor to set up his accommodations, and he's actually using them. The accommodations they gave him for ADHD, they made no sense to him. He does everything really fast. They wanted to give him extra time. And his comment was, I don't need extra time. That's the last thing I need. It'll just make me second guess all my answers versus getting audio recordings and PDFs of all written materials, which was one of the accommodations for dyslexia. That makes sense to Marcus. And so Marcus wants it. I knew this was what Lori did. And again, I observed how good she was at the big picture, which at this point was exactly what we needed. Everyone we'd met with over the past 10 years had their one sliver of expertise, but nothing more. It was like they had blinders on. There was no integration. And the worst part of all of this is that we'd been asking about dyslexia from the very beginning. Everyone that tested him, we'd ask, could it be dyslexia? Marcus asked, are you sure it's not dyslexia? I think it's dyslexia. But we were consistently told, no, it's not dyslexia. But how did they know? Because they never tested him for that. Everyone saw the ADHD, so that must be it. The doctor who administered Marcus's neuropsych test the second time, he was really good. He was an expert in ADHD, and he knew a lot about it. But again, I think he had this single-focused area of expertise, and that was even though he commented in his report on Marcus's very weak, open quote, auditory phonemic skills and spelling and word pronunciation, close quotes. And even after we told him that the reason we were retesting Marcus was to check for dyslexia, there was no integration. And as a parent, I was guilty of this too. I didn't push it because he was the expert. They were the experts. I had asked so many times and I was told so many times that it wasn't dyslexia and it was so easy to explain everything away with ADHD because so many of these symptoms overlap. And this was true even though there was this big gaping hole in Marcus's education. We knew that there was something else. Our gut told us that, but we didn't listen to it. Beyond all this, what we know is that ADHD has so many comorbidities that affect learning. The numbers are all over the place. Every time I see a study, I see different percentages, so I've stopped giving them, other than to say that 50 to 80% of those diagnosed with ADHD are diagnosed with some other condition sometime during their life, whether that's learning difference, sensory processing challenges, anxiety, depression, etc., And this is the deal. When you know what learning challenges your child has early on, they can be addressed so they're not left wondering what's wrong with them and trying to figure it out on their own. And they're not getting behind in school, which ultimately affects their opportunities, their self-esteem, and this follows them into adulthood. And the smart kids, they're the ones that fall through the cracks the most. I mean, if you're flunking out, you get a lot of attention. If you're anywhere in the average range, the schools don't have the time to help that child perform to their potential. Average is the goal. And I don't blame teachers, but a huge part of the problem is they're not trained either. I mean, my son has mispronounced words for as long as I can remember, to the point that he'd make us laugh because we're just like, where did that word come from those letters? Like, it didn't make any sense. He'll tell you. He still doesn't know the alphabet. He was a very late talker. He didn't know his address until he was probably in junior high school. He's always been confused about the days of the week. He couldn't tell time. For months in high school, I worked with him on homophones, and he couldn't get them right. You know, the there, there, and there, the difference between it's their toy. 
the toy is over there, or they're playing with the toys. But this was the big picture one, or the big one. He refused to read unless the book had lots of pictures. He loved books. He bought them all the time, but he wouldn't read them. Yet he loved books like Diary of a Wimpy Kid with tons of pictures and comic books. That one alone should have told us something. Look, if your kid is so curious, is always learning, but refuses to read, there's something going on. You know, in the words of Dr. Ross Green, kids do well if they can. If they don't do well, they don't have the skills. Something else is going on. And the deal with dyslexia is that there is treatment. And like most treatments related to learning challenges, the sooner the interventions begin, the better. So if you can get your child help in kindergarten, or first grade, that's better than second grade, which is better than fourth grade, which is when kids no longer learn to read, but they're reading to learn. And fourth grade is certainly better than at 19 when you're starting your sophomore year in college, but even that's better than never. And in the case of dyslexia therapy, it's all about neuroplasticity, where the therapist is literally helping to rewire parts of the brain to create new neural pathways. And so it's much harder to do this the older the child is. So anyway, the minute Lori came in and did Marcus's third round of neuropsych testing, and she came back with what we'd been suspecting for almost a decade, that it's dyslexia, I told Lori, I need you on this podcast. Lori has ADHD, and early on when working with her, I could see that her gift was seeing the big picture around all these learning challenges that so many educational testers have missed. And that's so ADHD, right? She's also a problem solver, again so ADHD. So I asked her to come on and do a big, broad overview of the main learning challenges that we see with ADHD, what the symptoms look like, how they overlap. So if you're like me and your child gets an ADHD diagnosis, but you're thinking it's not just ADHD, there's something else, this podcast is a great place to start. Look, if one child gets the support they need early on because this episode, so they're not 19 like my son, looking at three days a week of dyslexia therapy while starting a demanding new major like economics in college, then I'm happy. So that was a long intro, but I wanted to get you up to speed on how we ended up here and why this is so important to me. So let me finally introduce you to Lori Peterson. Hello. (laughs) Okay, now I hope nothing has changed with this introduction, but here I go, Lori. Lori Peterson is the owner and director of Diagnostic Learning Services. Her and her husband have five offices across the state of Texas, and they test for ADHD and learning challenges in children. She spends every day helping kids get identified and teaching parents how to help them. Lori has a bachelor's degree in special education. She spent eight years teaching students with learning disabilities in grades K through 12. She has a master's degree in special education with an emphasis on assessment and a second master's degree in professional counseling. Lori is also the mother to two boys. As I mentioned earlier, Lori also has ADHD, and you can learn more about her story in episode 61 of our podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. That's actually how I initially met Lori. So Lori, welcome. How are you? And I'm so sorry to make you sit through that. No, it was good to listen to. Thank you. No. And that's all perfect. It's exactly right. The exciting part, which you got to take advantage of, is since we met at episode 61, we have added the online testing 
to our services. So we are offering these through our online sister company of e-diagnostic learning, and we work with children and adults. So we're seeing kids starting as young as kindergarten all the way through, I think I've got this afternoon online, we're testing a 53-year-old woman. So we run the gamut. Well, I got to tell you this, Lori. Lori was kind enough to allow me to sit in on the testing because we did it virtually. And I was supposed to just kind of be there for the very beginning and then go off yonder, you know, is that go, go off into the yonder of whatever that phrase is. But I was so fascinated watching it that I couldn't leave. And so I watched the whole thing. And literally by the end, I was like, oh my gosh, Lori, I need to get tested myself. So anyway, I'm so grateful to have you join us today. I've had so much experience at this point with all this diagnostic testing. So I can say with conviction that no one is like you. You are literally a partner, the best kind of detective in getting to the bottom of all things learning disorder. I was just fascinated with the way you work. And, you know, my son's been tested so much as well. And he said, I really like her because she doesn't give stuff away. Like usually when I'm being tested, I can tell when I get an answer right or I get it wrong. And you're just like, oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. Like all the way through. (laughs) Well, you don't want them to feel defeated, right? You know, they know that they're struggling with something. The last thing you want to be is like, "Uh uh-huh, okay, uh uh-huh. So you have to just encourage them in any way that you can. Absolutely. So I'm going to do something different here. I am not going to lead this conversation. Instead, what I had asked you to do is to come on and just discuss the symptoms of all the comorbid learning challenges, or or not all of them, but, you know, the basic major ones that kids with ADHD might also struggle with. So we have the big picture. And then Lori and I talked about after recording this podcast, but before we air it, we're going to put together some sort of symptom Venn diagram or spreadsheet that a parent could literally work through in trying to figure out what's going on with their child, like where they should start. So does that still sound good, Lori? Yep, absolutely. Okay, so what do you want to start with? So let's just start with dyslexia since that's where we, that's kind of where you ended your conversation or your introduction. So let's start there because that one is really very common. And I think, you know, to kind of piggyback on what you were saying, I do feel like so many kids with ADHD, the schools um, oftentimes or other doctors will oftentimes say, oh, it's really just the inattention. And they blame any other academic struggles only on attention. And that's so unfair because you can have a learning disability with your ADHD. So to just kind of try to rope it all into that one category, these kids aren't getting the services that they need. And so it's so important to try to tease apart what's being caused by the inattention and what may be causing a lot more inattention, right? Because if you're sitting in a class and you don't know what's going on, you're checking out. I would. I mean, of course, I have ADHD, so I guess that doesn't count. (laughs) Somebody even without ADHD would, though. Well, and I think that's why Marcus's case was so difficult, because he kind of had a little bit of a lot, right? Right, But there was something that was leading it. And he knew all along, he would always say to me, mom, I don't have the executive function challenges you have. I am, I do not have ADHD to the degree you have. It's something else is going on. So I love his level of self-awareness. He's always been like that. 
So, yeah. okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to debunk the biggest myth first, because I think you and I even talked about this with dyslexia. Dyslexia has nothing to do with letter reversals, nothing at all. Even though I still joke when I flip letters around, I'll be like, oh, I'm so dyslexic today. It really has nothing to do with dyslexia. I don't know where the myth started. I don't know who started it, but it is such a myth. Dyslexia at its root is an inability to understand how the letters make sounds and those letter letters and sounds come together to form a word and how to manipulate those sounds to make new words. So rhyming is how you manipulate sounds to make a new word. So kids that in the early stages of learning how to read, they struggle to learn their letters. They struggle to assign you know, what, what sound does this letter make? And they can't even remember. And then as they move into that, those beginning reading stages of, of sounding words out, being able to take those sounds and, and isolate them and then blend them together to make a word. So that makes reading really hard and it makes spelling really hard. And so you'll see these kids that don't spell phonetically because they don't understand the sound symbol relationship, but then they also can't decode the word or sound it out. So those are the kids that want the pictures, right? I can memorize a book based on the pictures, but you take the pictures away, you, those kids are out of luck. And, and that's why they'll, you'll tell them a word on one page and then it's on the next page and they still don't know it. And parents are just like, you've got to be kidding me. I just told you what that word was. But phonetically, it doesn't make the rules don't make any sense to them. So you could show it to them a hundred times and they're not going to know it. They can make a 100 on a spelling test if they memorize those words and they memorize them. But you ask them how to spell one of those words the next week. They're not going to be able to spell it because they've already moved on to the next list. They didn't understand the rules as to why those words were spelled the way they were spelled. So they just memorize the letters in order and you can only memorize so much stuff. The thing is, that, is go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and that was totally what was going on with Marcus. I mean, mm -hmm. I look at his report cards and, you know, spelling tests, he would get a hundred percent. He did great. But where he didn't do great is the standardized test. That's where you would see the spelling problems because he mm -hmm. couldn't memorize the words. No, absolutely. And I think what happens is, is that your really bright kids, your problem solvers, they find workarounds and they're able to fake it. And some kids hit a wall. Once those strategies stop working, you hit that wall. And that's typically when they come in for testing. So we might see those kids at second or third grade. We might see those kids at fourth or fifth grade, but we've had college kids come in for testing and we're like, wow, you have dyslexia and your strategies are amazing. But they know, they know they're having to work harder than everybody else to get, to get to the same place, right? Just to stay even, forget getting ahead. But then you throw, when you throw ADHD in the mix, Again, everything just gets chalked up to the ADHD and it takes really looking at all of those symptoms individually and seeing, okay, what here's really, can I blame on ADHD and what can I not? I think one of the other most important things about dyslexia is that by definition, it's an unexplained underachievement in reading, meaning that I can't blame it on anything else. I can't blame it on slow processing speed or I can't blame it on you know low cognitive skills. Their math is fine. So clearly they're able to learn. But there's just, I, I can't put my finger on why this is so hard for them. And so sometimes when people see that inattention, they'll say, oh, well, that explains it. Okay, well, that might explain the slow processing speed or the poor working memory, but it really doesn't explain why he can't sound out this word or why she can't you know, spell these words. And so you really have to be able to make sure that you're calling it what it is because the therapy and the remediation or the help for dyslexia is so specialized 
but it's amazing. I always tell parents, it's almost like, you know, like you said earlier, we, we teach kids how to read in kindergarten, first and second grade. Somebody with that's sitting in that classroom that has dyslexia, they may as well be teaching it in German. It doesn't make any sense to them. The minute they are sitting in front of a dyslexia therapist, learning the way their brain understands it, now it's in English. Like, thank you, finally, someone speaking my language. Now I understand these rules. This makes more sense to me. And it's done in what they call a very multi-sensory way. The kids see it, say it, you know, hear it, touch it even. The way that they they write on whiteboards, and especially with the little kids, they use lots of manipulatives. And all of a sudden now it makes sense in their brain and they can learn how to read. So they acquire all the same tools every other child has to decode a word and to sound out words or to spell words. They just acquired those tools through a different program in a different way. So that time in elementary school, it was just a blur. It didn't make any sense to them. Now it's making sense. But you can't, you can't just send them, you can't, can't just get a phonics tutor to come back and reteach phonics because that's what they did in elementary school and it didn't work. You really have to go about it a whole different way. And that's what those dyslexia therapists do. So I recently read, and this was shocking to me, that dyslexia is the most common learning disorder and that it affects 80 to 90% of all learning disorders. That have you heard that? Me. I have heard. It is a very high number. Yes. So it's- just, I don't understand, you know, if you know, there's a hole, you know, there's something going on. It's almost like to me, that should just be a give me. Right. 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 Well, and if the, the numbers are that high, why aren't they doing a better job of screening in those lower grades? Oh, you tell me. I mean, I'm so frustrated. It's so fr- it's frustrating. It is. It's and it's just you want to beat your head against the wall because you're like, it's right here. How could you have missed it? And well, and then what? I look. There's something to be said about mom gut. You know, a mom gut that they're like, there's just something else. I mean, usually if your mom gut tells you that, there is. Yeah. You know, the other thing is you had mentioned that, you know, there's this myth around when you mix up letters and numbers that that's dyslexia. And even the experts who did his visual processing disorder, whatever test, they had that on there wrong. I know. So how would they recommend anybody to test for dyslexia if they don't even know that basic thing? If they don't know what it is, right? No, I know. And I wish I could tell you that we don't see that a lot, but it does. I just... Every chance I get to debunk that myth, I am screaming it from the rooftop because, you know, and and honestly, B and D reversals or just letter and number reversals in general are totally developmentally appropriate through the end of second grade, sometimes into early third grade. I have a May birthday son who was still reversing his B's and D's into the beginning of third grade, but it was way less and it slowly tapered off because that's normal. That's how your brain's developing. When it's happening past that, that's when we're talking about the visual processing stuff. That's something, or visual acquisition, visual processing. It's the way your eyes and brain are connecting and the way your brain is making sense of mm-hmm. what your eyes are seeing. So still, now I will tell you that there are people that will tell you there's different kinds of dyslexia. And there <laughs> I are that not. question. There are not. Okay. There are not. There These other kinds that you can Google and you'll see like visual dyslexia, which is just visual processing disorder. You'll Mm. see um, stealth dyslexia, which is just a really fancy way to talk about those kids that are really bright that can fly under the radar for a much longer time. But if you look at the International Dyslexia Association, their definition is all about the phonological aspects of reading and spelling and, and writing. That's where dyslexia is. Those other names almost talk about other symptoms for other things, or it talks even about specific symptoms of dyslexia that somebody has isolated. But really, dyslexia is just about reading 
and being able to sound words out. And like I said, we have seen, we've had students, I've had students older than Marcus come in that have never been diagnosed, but, but the, the common thread, mom asked the school to test, mom tried to get testing done, mom got testing done and the school said no, but it was there. You just got to know how to look for it. And you have to know when you're dealing with a really bright student, the expectations are going to be a little bit different. It's going to look a little bit different, but it doesn't mean it can't be there. It's, it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah. And, and again, it's that as long as you're average, you know, right. we don't care that you're performing to your full potential. Right, right. And that's the problem, too, is that a lot of the schools, a lot of the issues with waiting for the school to do something, well, they're waiting for the student to fail. And how counterproductive is that? I mean, why wait until their self-esteem is in the toilet and they feel terrible about themselves and now they're even further behind before you start jumping in to help? You know, it's too late. It, it's, it's never too late, but you have to do a lot more work the longer you wait. Well, and by then they're angry and they don't trust anybody. Exactly. Oh, yeah. No, exactly. So, yeah, it's all about jumping in it as quick as you can. Early intervention is key. Anything you read about dyslexia or any learning disability, really, the earlier you intervene, the less likely it's going to impact them significantly as they get older. Dyslexia is not curable. It's there forever. But you can get those skills to make it be a lot less um, of a problem. So when we have kids that we do, because we reevaluate students that are getting ready to go to college that just need a current, you know, copy of their testing so they can get support. I can always tell if they've been through a dyslexia program because their scores reflect it. Now they still don't love to read and they still don't spell great and they may not read fast, but all of those phonological skills are where they're, sh where they should be. And so I always know the difference between somebody who's been through one of those programs and somebody who hasn't, it's, it's night and day. I guess the good news for dyslexic is that our world is changing and we're reading less and less, huh? I guess. But, you know, it's a skill I think everybody needs. I just think I do think we are learning more about it. And they have like the dis, they call the dyslexia font, which I'm not really sure how that works. But there are to me, the assistive technology pieces are just like you talked about with Marcus getting audio books you know, being able to listen and follow along. Usually our dyslexic kids have really good listening skills because that's what they've relied on. They've relied on just, you know, I'm just going to listen because I'll get more out of it than if I try to read it. Yeah. So clearly, if you have a child who, I, I love the unexplained word, you know, using that yeah. word, there's something, there's just a hole in their learning. That's a big signal. They mispronounce words, right? Is that another one? Yeah, absolutely. They appear to be so engaged and interested in everything, but they refuse to read. So they're constantly absorbing information, but in ways that does not involve reading. That would be mm -hmm. a big one to me. Is there anything else? I mean, the books with pictures, you know, that they, they'll get books, but there always have to be books with a lot of pictures. Or they like those, what do you call those, like gra are they graphic novels where they have all the pictures kind of mm -hmm. almost in place of words or the comic book type books, those kinds of things. The spelling is big. Like they can study for a spelling test, make a hundred, then the next week couldn't spell that word to save their life. Mm -hmm. That's a big red flag. And, you know, just looking back, even the comprehension, you know, are they spending so much time trying to read every single word that they have zero idea what they just read? Again, that's a huge ADHD thing, right? Like I could read something and have no idea what I just read, but I don't have dyslexia. But that is also a sign of dyslexia because they're just working so hard to read every one of those words that by the time they're done, they're like, I have really, I couldn't put all that together to save my life. So yeah, the comprehension is important. Interestingly, so I'm going to jump to the next 
dys because I do want to first say that, you know, we've got dyslexia. We're going to talk a little bit about dyscalculia or dyscalcula, tomato, mm-hmm. tomato, and then dysgraphia. They are totally unrelated other than they start with the word dys and dys just means difficulty with. So difficulty with reading, difficulty or reading and language, difficulty with writing, difficulty with numbers. Otherwise, zero related. So we'll have parents that will will call and say, well, my child's reversing their numbers and their letters. So I think they have dyscalculia and dyslexia. And I'm like, okay, well, first, it's not about reversing letters, but they think that all of that is very connected and it's not, they're not related whatsoever. Having one doesn't automatically mean you have the other, but the dyscalculia is really just difficulty with math. And this is a huge one for kids with ADHD because what we have to figure out is, do these kids truly have a math learning disability or do they have the ability to learn math, but they just have gaps caused by their ADHD? Because math is like a 14-story building and you're building on the, the floor before you, you know, the, the floor underneath you, every year you build another layer, right? Another level. And if that floor below, last year's floor is full of holes because you were staring out the window for half the class, it's going to make this year really, really wobbly and then forget next year, right? Because that is just going to be a hot mess. So kids, I would say for us, in as far as evaluations go, kids with ADHD, I mean, probably I would say 80% of them struggle with math because they just have holes. So it's our job to figure out are are there holes or do they just really have an inability? Do they struggle? And so we really have to back up and look at how they problem solve, how they reason. You know, if those if those skills are weak, then yeah, there there might be some difficulties with math that are unexplainable by anything else, by ADHD. But if their problem solving skills are good and they um, can do these problems, but they can't do these problems because they saw the fraction and they were like, I'm out because I don't get fractions, you know, then to me, there's some gaps. And what we just need to do is go back and fill in those holes, which no tutor would ever do, right? If you get a math tutor, they're going to tutor you in calculus. They're going to tutor you in algebra. They're not going to say, oh, hey, do you really understand place value? Because they're going to assume that you do. When really the problem may be all the way back at the second grade level. And once we go back and fill that gap and we teach them how why we borrow when we subtract and the top number is not bigger than the bottom number, that's the, the concept they're doing today as we work our way through the, the lineage of that skill, the concept in algebra calculus may make a whole lot more sense. But because they have all these holes, they're just, math is a pattern, right? So if I teach somebody A squared plus P plus B squared equals C squared. They could do a whole a whole page of those problems and not have any idea what any of that means. So what happens is, is they do the pattern, they do it over and over again, and then they get to the test two weeks later and they see that problem and they're like, oh, I don't remember how to do that because they didn't understand it. Just like the spelling we talked about. If you don't understand how the rules as to why the letters go in that order, it's very hard to remember. Same with math. If you don't remember, if you don't understand why you're doing the problem that way, well, then it's really hard to understand it and, and save it and remember it for later. So I always tell students, when you're studying math, pretend like you're teaching it to somebody. Try to explain it to somebody else. I'm doing this because try to answer the why questions. And if you can't answer the why questions, you probably don't really understand it. And you got to go back and figure out what you're missing. And oftentimes, like I said, there's a gap somewhere. But there are kids that truly have a math learning disability, which now is called dyscalculia or dyscalculia. We haven't used that term for very long. It used to just be a learning disability in math for a long time. And now we have a fancy name for it, which that name may have been around for a long time. But it's just kind of come to the come to the front. And, and that could be kids that struggle to recognize those patterns. They don't see the patterns. 
you could teach them a squared plus b squared equals c squared and they can't keep it going because they don't understand the pattern but they also have trouble with reading time on an on an analog clock which unfortunately a lot of our kids struggle with because we don't use them anymore but even if you teach it to them they struggle with it they struggle understanding place value even if even when it's taught appropriately right and there are no gaps and they are focused and they're listening it doesn't make any sense to them. So they they have some skill, lack of understanding of some of those basic concepts that have been taught and they've been present for. And that makes math today very hard. So for those kids, it's a lot about teaching them how to use a calculator appropriately, how to um, use a multiplication chart, how to, you know, making sure that they've got a copy of the formulas before they take a test and they're allowed to use that on a test. And, you know, interestingly, those are going to be the kids that aren't going to be our engineers because they're not going to be drawn to a, a math-driven career. They're going to be our, our language-based career people. Um, but they, they do. They have an honest struggle with math, regardless of how many times it's taught, how many different ways it's taught. It just, their brain is not going to take it. So we have to help them find some workarounds. So there is a real difference between having those gaps and being able to fill them, and then just having a, a real difficulty understanding it, period. So um, in one of your podcast episodes, I think so. I think that's where I heard about it. You said that, um, was it Sylvan Learning that is really yes. good about building, you know, building up the, those stories if you're lacking for anybody? Yes. Yes. So they go in, I actually, one of my, as a, as a true ADHR, I've had a million jobs. So one of my very first jobs was I actually worked at Sylvan Learning Center and they do a great job of doing an assessment a very generic assessment that just looks at all of your skills and they can say, okay, you're missing place value at a second grade level. You're missing, you know, multiplication, basic concepts or multiplication with regrouping. And they go back to the very beginning and start reteaching it to you again. So to me, that is genius because that's what those kids need. They need to go back and again, no tutor. You hire a tutor, they're going to help you with the homework. They're not going to go back and reteach you something from five years ago. They might teach you something from this year that you may have missed. But nothing, they won't go back that far where they, it's very prescriptive. They look, it's so, it's amazing. So yes, for the, for the gaps, that is great. But for somebody who really just struggles with math, it does take a tutor that can really spend time with them and help them with the best of their ability to really understand the concepts and lots of reteaching and lots of manipulatives. Staying after school and doing tutoring with the math teacher, I don't recommend because if you didn't understand it the first time she explained it, you're probably not going to understand it the second time she explains it. So get someone different to use different words and explain it in a different way. And it may, that may be all you need. It may make all the sense in the world. Oh, if she would have just said it that way, I would have understood it. Oh my God. The teachers are so important. It's why I They're always huge. wonder, does it make sense to repeat grades? You know, <laughs> I mean, if it's the Not same usually. person, yeah, teaching you, it just makes you feel bad about yourself, I would think. Yeah. The only time we recommend repeating a grade is for those kiddos that have those really late birthdays. So they're the youngest kid in their grade. It's more though, not to relearn skills, but just to have that year to mature and grow. And they're going to give you a different teacher anyway. They're never going to give you the same teacher. So you will get to hear it a different way at least. But yeah, the teachers are so important. And, and that's probably my biggest, you know, um, my number one thing I think parents need to do is they need to communicate with those teachers communicate. And those teachers are overwhelmed and they got 150 things going on, especially now in the middle of COVID. But email them. They will email you back. Tell them your concerns. Tell them what you're seeing at home. Because what happens is, is that in class, this child looks like they're getting it. They're nodding their head. They're smiling and everything looks great. But then they get home and it's three hours later and they're crying because they can't do the homework. And teachers don't see that. They don't know. 
So you have to communicate with the teacher and let them know, look, this is what we're seeing. I know in class it may look different, but something's amiss. And let the teacher see if they can put their finger on it too. Because, you know, they're, they're spending more time with your child sometimes than you are. Let them take a stab at it. Let them look at it and tell you what they think. But that's huge. You've got to communicate. And you have to know what the teacher is seeing too, because they might be seeing some of that too and just haven't had the chance to let you know. So Lori, like with reading where, you know, it changes in third to fourth grade, is there something that happens in fourth grade with math? I would say same third to fourth grade, because here's what happens is that we teach addition, subtraction, place value, regrouping through second grade. Starting in third grade, we throw in multiplication. Well, what's multiplication? It's repeated addition. So if you struggle to understand addition, repeated addition isn't going to be any easier. And then division is just the opposite of that. So yeah, that it's that same third, fourth grade year. And fourth grade, at least here in Texas, is where we really kick in the writing. So that's where we start to see a lot of the writing struggles really come to the surface because we've done some writing through third grade, but fourth grade is when our state writing test is administered for the first time. So clearly that's when everybody's making the kids write and write and write in journals and paragraphs. And, and that's where you start to see the writing concerns. But reading, I would say third into fourth, math third into fourth. And so third. in math, is that when word problems start too? fourth grade? No, they start those really in second grade, sometimes in first grade, but oftentimes you still have the teacher reading them to them. So if, the, if, if it's a reading struggle and the teacher's reading the problem to them, well, then they're fine. But again, third grade, they expect a lot more independent reading. So that even though they've been introduced to word problems, they haven't had to read as many of them on their own until they get to third grade, depending on your school and depending on the, the curriculum, as you might have some of that the second half of second grade. Um, but really I think third grade is where it really kicks in. Okay. So what comes after dyscalculia? Dysgraphia. Let's talk about writing again, another big ADHD one, because guess what happens with kids with ADHD? They rush through their work. And when you rush through your work, your handwriting's messy. So, but dysgraphia is truly an inability. It's, it's, it's a weakness. It's a fine motor issue. It, it's an inability to really write neatly um, and write legibly. And so we see kids that either put too much pressure on the paper or not enough pressure. They might hold their pencil funny, like, you know, like we use a what we call a tripod grip, but some kids will put all their fingers together to hold the pencil. Some will hold it like in their fist. We've seen some crazy pencil grips. Their letters are all different sizes and shapes and they form their letters. What we call it an unconventional letter formation. So they might start at the bottom and go to the top or start in the middle and go up and then go back down. We've seen it all. But it may, when you do things like that, it makes your writing very hard to read. The letters may all be crammed together or they may be totally spaced out um, because they've, someone has yelled at them enough to say, you've got to leave spaces between your words. So we'll see both. They, they will either erase a lot or they cross out or for our ADHD kids, sometimes they'll just write right over it. So we really have to be able to say, okay, if I ask this child to go slow and take their time and give me their very best handwriting, can I read it? Or is it going to look exactly the same? And so that's where we kind of have to differentiate. So we do a lot of different writing activities that will help us see how these kids write. We have them write words in isolation, one word at a time. That doesn't take a lot of effort. Even with for a kid with ADHD, they can write one word at a time pretty neatly. Sentences, paragraphs. Um, and then we just really analyze their writing. It's very, um, it's a little bit subjective because we're looking and it's kind of my opinion, like, yeah, this is terrible. I can't read it. But interestingly, Every child that we test for dysgraphia, we include the visual processing piece. 
because sometimes they can't see the spaces. You know, one of the things with visual processing and visual acquisition and how your brain takes in that information is being able to see those white spaces. And so we'll have kids that when they read, they don't really see the spaces. So you don't see them when you write. So we have to really make sure that the visual spatial skills are okay. So we'll assess for visual spatial skills when we assess for writing, because we want to make sure that we're covering all of our bases because to just say they have dysgraphia and send them off with some accommodations and some supports and maybe a referral for an OT. Well, if you do have a visual processing issue, we're missing it. That none of that's going to help. And that's what I tell parents too about reading. So again, ADHD, I'm jumping all over the place, but the visual processing to me is a lot. It's the physical issue that impacts your reading. It can impact your math because the way you line up your numbers on the page, right? And then the way you write and the way you spell, if you think about spelling, spelling can be a very visual task. We look at a word and say, oh, that doesn't look right. Hardly do we ever say that doesn't sound right. We're looking at that word. So if visually I'm, I have poor visual memory or I, I, I'm struggling with how things look on the paper, I'm not going to recognize when I make a spelling mistake. And so I tell parents, the very first thing we want to do is address the vision. It's a lot like if you were to have a stress fracture, but you were training for a marathon. You're not going to keep running once you find out you have that stress fracture, right? You're going to stop and you're going to let your foot heal. You might do some other things. You might go lift weights and you might swim, but you're not going to run until that's healed. Same thing with reading, writing, and math. If there's a visual processing issue, you're going to take a little bit of a break. You're not going to make your kid read every night. You're going to make sure that things are being read to them. You're going to help them as they line up their numbers. You're going to let them dictate to you while you address, while you do the vision therapy, because it's just cruel to make them run on a broken foot, right? Mm-hmm. So let's fix the vision then. And, and in the interim, we're going to work on reading comprehension. We're going to practice mental math and we're going to, you know, we're going to dictate. He's going to still have to write the same paper everyone else has to write, but they're going to dictate it. They're going to use voice to text or they're going to dictate it to me and I'm going to write it. And then once we get our vision therapy completed, now we haven't lost any ground. We still practice all the same skills. We've just done it a different way. And now we can go back to doing it like everybody else. So with the writing, we have to be very careful not to, you know, parents will say, well, I just took it away from him and I made, it write, made him write it all over again. That just makes me cringe. I'm like, no, that's worse. Because <laughs> now you're, now he's feel so, this child feels so defeated because they just did all this work and you just, you know, made him start all over again. So you know what? Let's let him type it. Let's let him use voice to text. Let's see how that goes. Because really it's all about, to me, it's way more important to get the message out. Does he understand the concepts? care what it looks like. Does he understand it? And if he can demonstrate knowledge, that's what we want. These kids have great stories in their heads, but they put three words on paper because that's all they can write. The writing is overwhelming. And so we have to really help them foster that love for telling stories and for organizing their ideas and getting their thoughts out. And let's do it by letting them dictate or type, depending on their age. So dysgraphia, we do refer almost always also to an OT because I want to make sure their fine motor skills, if there's something they can do to build that fine motor, they often complain of their hands cramping or their hands getting tired. They shake their hands out. So we do often refer to an OT for that occupational therapist. So if you have a kid who is doing the bare minimum when it comes to writing, are you looking at dyslexia, visual processing disorder, and also dysgraphia typically? And ADHD. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. And ADHD. Because you know what? That Think about how many executive functions it takes to write. And it's why writing, for me, writing blogs, I, I mean, I'm like, can't I just tell somebody? I mean, do I have to write it? 
Because I have to think about where do I want to start? What do I want to say? How do I want to say it? Like the executive functioning side of me just shuts down. And that's what happens to these kids. They can tell it to you all day long, but putting on paper. So they have to, we have to talk a lot about pre-writing. Like how are you going to, you know, uh, graphic organizers, outlines, things that can help them organize their thoughts, then they just transfer that to a rough draft, right? But if the handwriting is terrible and you can't read it, and the spacing is weird and they, they start all their letters at the bottom and they always complain that their hand hurts. Okay, well, then it's probably something more along the lines of dysgraphia. Can you fix dysgraphia? You can strengthen those muscles. So it's about muscles. It is, it is a lot about their, their hand muscles, but, but you can't, once a child starts making their, forming their letters from the bottom up, you're not going to change that. And pencil grips are very hard to change too. So again, it's one of those things that we might be able to accommodate and make better, but it's never going away. And honestly, if you think about as an adult, how much handwriting we do, I was at the dentist a couple of weeks ago and they handed me this big stack of forms. And I'm like, oh, I, I probably want to fill these out online because I don't write anymore. My handwriting's terrible now and I don't have, I just don't use it. And so, yeah, I just as an adult, we type everything anyway. It's so interesting. You know, I have, I ran across some things that I had written when I was probably in my, I don't know, late twenties, early thirties. I don't even recognize the handwriting. Mm-hmm. It is such a mess now. Because, and you're right, it's because we don't write anymore. I, I no. didn't even think about that. I thought, well, that's my ADHD. Something happened, you know? Because <laughs> no, you've always had the ADHD. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, we just, we don't use it. And I think you have to really prioritize how much do you want to beat this child up over handwriting when we have great technology. There are some great apps that we recommend for dysgraphia. One of them, and we can put these in the show notes, one of them is called SnapType. And what it is, it's for the iPad. And in school, when they're handed a worksheet, because every worksheet never leaves enough room for someone to write all their answers in. So you take a picture of the worksheet, they can type their answers in, and then they can print it right back out right there. Done. I could use that. Right? There's yeah. another one. It's called Mod Math. Both of these were designed by occupational therapists who have dysgraphic children. And the math, Mod Math, allows them to put their, um, put all the numbers in for their problems, but it lines them up. Because if you're doing three digit by three digit multiplication and you don't keep everything lined up, you're not going to get the right answer. So it helps keep all of the numbers lined up. But my, my best um, cheat for that is just to take a piece of lined paper and turn it horizontal. Now you have columns. Use that for your longer math calculations. Don't make them try to make their own. And graph, a lot of people try to say, oh, no, use graph paper. Graph paper for dysgraphic kids, those writing in those little squares. Just take uh-huh. a lined piece of paper, turn it, turn it horizontally, turn it long ways. Let them use the columns for those longer math calculations. They won't be able to fit as many problems on a page, probably. That's okay. But that way they have those columns. But mod math helps them also keep their math lined up for those longer problems. It's not a calculator. It doesn't give many answers, but it just keeps their work organized. It's very cool. So the one for forms and worksheets, it's called Snap Type? Yep. And okay. it's in the App Store. And I think by now they might have it for um, not Apple people. What do you call that? Android? Not Apple people. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> not Apple people. Bananas. Not- there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What comes after dysgraphia? So those are our big three, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dyscalcula, again, however you want to say it, and dysgraphia. Those are our big ones. Visual processing and ADHD are the ones that lay over them all, right? Because you got to be able to tell what's what. 
I will say that visual, we actually just did another podcast with another doctor who I'm super excited. It's number 24. It comes out in about a month. Um, she's another local visual processing doctor and she did an amazing job of explaining things again. Cause I feel like, I felt like we needed to do another one really because of my conversation with you, but because I do feel like it's just, it's so common and so many other, we have kids that get misdiagnosed with, with dyslexia, right? Because they're disfluent readers because they can't track across the page when really they don't have dyslexia. They could, they could sound out words all day long. We have, but then it's also, it affects math and how kids line up their work and they, they're constantly, or they, they misread the sign. They'll do a, a plus instead of multiplication because they don't recognize the, the, the sign twists on them and it affects their writing. So just like ADHD can cause problems in all those areas, so can visual processing. And I actually and had a student. And the symptoms so, are really similar, right? They are. So listen to, the, I have a really cool story. So it's been a while since I saw this student. She was a fifth grader though, and I could picture her face. She came in and mom and dad were just like, again, that gut feeling. She's been diagnosed with ADHD. We are on medication. She hates it. It doesn't seem like it's helping. She's just struggling. So I've never seen anyone with visual processing as bad as hers. It broke my heart. What I found out was the way that she was diagnosed with ADHD was with one of those continuous performance tests, you know, the ones where you sit on the computer and you do a really boring task and it measures your ability to focus. They're great tests. We have one. I love it. But the one that she took, the child has to deter, has to hit the space bar every time they see the eight-pointed star, but there might be a 12-pointed star and a five-pointed star. Well, if you have visual processing issues, you can't discriminate between those. So with that test, she got diagnosed with ADHD. I'm like, ah, just put her on medication. I mean, she's she had it so bad. She like bumped into furniture. Like she could not find her place in space. She was, her visual system, her and all of that was just a disaster. So I'm like, stop taking the medicine. It isn't, she isn't, she was the most attentive kid I'd ever met, but she couldn't, her eye, who knows? I wish I could have crawled inside her head to see what she saw because, wow. But yeah, I mean, talk about a huge misdiagnosis. And those are the kids that we typically see, like they've been through a dyslexia program, but they're not making any progress. They still can't read. Well, it's because the words are moving around on the page, right? So, so what, um, what are the symptoms? Like, what do you hear from these kids with visual processing issues? Um, they lose their place when they read. Um, they ha end up reading the same line over and over again. I have had kids tell me that the words move around on the page. Their eyes hurt. They have headaches. The one little girl that came in that had already seen a, a doctor, she had these glasses on that had just a little bit of tint. And I asked her, I said, tell me about your glasses. How do they help you read? She's like, well, when I wear my glasses, I can see the spaces between the words. But when I don't have them, I, I can't. So can you imagine just looking at a row of letters and someone telling you that's made up of words? So when we see their writing all crammed together or when they write and they can't space to the end of the line. So then their words kind of trail off, you know, because they can't judge how much space they have. That's my son. <laughs> is this word going to fit? And you can have both. It, I'm not saying you have to have one or the other, just like Marcus, you can have a visual processing issue and dyslexia. You can have visual processing and dysgraphia and dyscalculia and ADHD. You just have to know how to differentiate and make sure that you're covering all of those because treating one isn't going to be enough. You got to get the right help for all of them. And we have adults that come to us and we're like, oh my gosh, how have you made it this far? You have a terrible visual processing issue or you have really, you know, you have dyslexia. How did you make it this far? It's amazing. You know, people are, we are resourceful. Have, we used to have huge battles about thank you notes. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, my daughter just would whip them out and everything was so beautiful and never had to ask her twice. With Marcus, you literally had to chain him to the chair. And then mm-hmm. I, I finally discovered that I just need to, I would, what I did was I had those ones made where you just fill in the blank. Because oh, it was just so painful. But then I'd ask him to address the envelope. And he would literally start almost at the end of the envelope. And then it, the address would be all over the page. And then it would just literally run out of space. And I, You're like, this is not getting delivered to anybody. This is never making it out of our mailbox. <laughs> well, I just couldn't understand why he would do that. Or it would start out really small and then it would get big. It was just weird. But one of the things that you and I talked about, and one of the ones that we notice is that our kids with visual processing issues can do mental math like nobody's business. Yep. Because can. writing it down for them doesn't make any sense. Those columns and all of that doesn't make any sense. So what they do is they do it in their head, but then they get counted off because they didn't show their work. But if the teacher understood that showing the work, it just confuses them. Yeah. The mental math thing, it amazes me. Uh, That's always a big one. And also really good listening. Like we do a listening comprehension test and those kids with visual processing and or dyslexia, they blow that one out of the water. They can remember anything you give them verbally. And that's even with ADHD, right? Because what always surprises me is how good his working memory is and how fast he is as compared to me, where I'm like, "Uh, what'd you just say? You know, like he he remembers. Yep. Well, I tested that and I was like, you, because he has good problem solving skills too. So when I asked him to say a big, long series of numbers backwards, he was like, yeah, no problem. Because A, I'm used to putting everything in my head and B, I'm a good problem solver. So I have a strategy on how to do that. So when you see listening, really good listening skills and really good mental math skills, is that more a sign of dyslexia or is it both dyslexia and visual processing? Do you think? It could be either one. So we have to, that's where we have to dig deeper. Yeah, it could be both. We have to dig deeper. But those are always, those to me are like those secondary things like, oh, and look, not only do we see it here, but look what a good listener they are. You know, and they talk about how, interestingly too, I had a student, we didn't talk about auditory processing disorder. I guess that's one I could, but but I had a student we talked about who had really poor auditory processing, had trouble, the brain doesn't process what she hears and she, it takes her a while to think about what someone has said. Well, as we're going through her testing results, her visualization skill off the charts. It was her strongest one. I'm like, see, because you visual it for you to see it is so much better than to hear it. Where a lot of kids, they'd rather hear it than see it. So it's again, and how valuable is that information to tell a teacher or just even a student? Because then she can advocate for herself. You know what? It'd be a lot better if you showed me instead of told me. Oh, who knew? Right. That is just huge that they understand how their brain works. So it's not about them and there's something wrong with them. It's that, no, I don't learn that way. But if you do it this way, I can learn just as well as anybody else. And that's why if we've got really like eighth, ninth grade through adult, obviously, they're part of that review of testing because they need to hear it. They have to start learning how to advocate for themselves because you're exactly right. They can learn it. They just maybe need it a different way. And it's okay to ask. It's not something to be embarrassed about. Yeah. So if you're diagnosed with visual processing disorder and dyslexia, it sounded to me like what you said is address the visual processing first and then go to the dyslexia, or are you doing them both at the same time? Or because there's only so many hours in the day, right? This is also true. Depends on the student. Somebody like Marcus could probably do both because he's already, he's already got enough skills under his belt. But for somebody who's not like a younger student, who's not reading at all, 
I say, let's, let's address visual processing first. And then the doctor or the therapist will let you know when it's time then to start the reading. But why start that? So, you know, that's so important that, that fundamental learning of those skills, if you're still not seeing it right, and you might not get it because then you're gonna have to do it again. So let's wait until we know that what you're seeing is what we're all seeing and how you're seeing it is going to make sense to you, then you're ready to go. But these kids are going to fly through it. And that's the great thing is that once we address all these issues, these programs are going to be easy for them. And they're, we're speaking their language and things are clicking and they're, oh, it's always bright kids, right? Because remember, it's an unexpected learning disability. It's not because these kids aren't bright. So once we give it to them in their language, they fly through it. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You touched on audio processing disorder, and that is one that I actually hear a lot when I'm interviewing ADHD women on the podcast, where they want to be able to see me, so they want video, because they need to see my mouth move. Wait, is that true? (laughs) Am I making sense? (laughs) No, you are making sense. And I will tell you, again, here's another one that is that because they struggle to focus if they can't see you, right? Because listening for those of us with ADHD is really hard. Sometimes it's so much better if we can see something with it. Or is it because their brain just isn't, doesn't process what they hear? And so, and, and at auditory processing, there's a lot of different pieces of that. You know, is it a physical hearing issue? Because, you know, we hear sounds at different decibel levels. So is it that at one of those decibel levels, your brain, your ears aren't, the, the, the inner workings of your ear aren't, working the way they're supposed to, right? So you're missing out on some of those sounds. Or is it that your brain, it's after you hear somebody tell you something that you have to process it for a few seconds longer than, than what's average to really be able to act on it? Or do you need to have it repeated? You know, sometimes, and that's what a lot of people say is like, I just need to, if I can hear it twice or three times, you know, then I'm good. But I need to think about it for a second and I, sometimes repeating it really helps. So it could be at the sound level, which then, then remember what dyslexia is, sound symbol relationship. So if you're struggling at the sound level, 50% of kids with dyslexia also have auditory processing disorder. Oh, because wow. Because they're not hearing the sounds correctly. So again, let's go back to the whole stress fracture in your foot and running a marathon. You're not going to go through a dyslexia program if you're not hearing the sounds correctly, because I could stand on my head and teach it to you, but if you're not hearing it, it ain't going to matter. You got to get your auditory processing addressed first through therapy and sometimes through a hearing aid or a, a assistive technology device like a FM system, which is a microphone system that the teacher wears and the student wears the headphones. And then there's also therapy that goes along that can be helpful. Then you want to do the dyslexia program, but don't jump into the dyslexia program if you're not hearing things correctly. So again, part of the testing we do, we can weed that out. We can say, nope, I think auditory processing, look, they're hearing me fine because we have them do some repetition. Here's a made up word. Say it back to me. So that one, do they test in schools? Because I remember my kids always getting tested for their hearing. They only test hearing. They only test the, the can they hear and really not like an audiologist does. It's more of a screening. So you may not pick it up through a school screening. You have to go and really, if for a for a really good central auditory processing disorder evaluation, you want to see both an audiologist and a speech language therapist, pathologist, because those are the two people together that can determine if you have auditory processing disorder, because you've got to check the physical inner workings of your ear, as well as how your brain is processing what you hear. 
So what are the symptoms of that? Is it just what you would expect to the child, you know, when you're not, they're not looking at you, they're not responding at all. They can't, I mean, is there anything yeah, think more about than how that? many of those kids get misdiagnosed with ADHD? Because they're not oh. paying attention, right? Because you're like, oh, they're just not listening to me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, it's it's when you have to repeat yourself or you or you ask a question and you see the wheels turning, but they're not giving you, it takes them a few seconds to respond. You know, like you see it, like they're thinking. And, you know, inpatient people like myself will just repeat it or be like, hello, come on, are you listening to me? You know, when really, <laughs> absolutely, they're just, they got to think about it for a second. And then they're going to, they ask for things to be repeated a lot, even though, you know, they're looking right at you. Can you say that again? Those kinds of things. Is language processing disorder part of audio processing disorder? They can be related and speech. So that was, was the, if you're not hearing the sounds correctly, it's hard to say them correctly. So, so those are some of those kids with those speech issues that despite speech therapy, they're struggling to improve their TH or their R's. Well, then how are they hearing it? Maybe that's the problem. And they spell like they say it because it's probably how they hear it. Oh, yeah. And so, yes, your expressive language can be impacted by that, right? Because if it, you're not processing what you hear, you're not processing good, solid examples of how language should be expressed, then it's hard for you to put your thoughts into words. And then if you have trouble putting your thoughts into words, imagine how hard it is to put it on paper. Mm. So usually a good a good speech and language pathologist, because we always think about those are the people that help us with our THs and our S's and our R's. They also look at expressive and receptive language. Are you understanding? And can you put your thoughts into words back at me? And so all of that has to be evaluated when we're looking at, at auditory processing. It's so fascinating. And again, think about how many kids get diagnosed with ADHD because they're just, they can't process fast. They can't process what you're saying fast enough. Okay, so is there any other learning challenge that we should talk about? Okay, so Tracy, we could talk all day. Like I could keep you here all day and I could tell you all about all the little minutiae and the how this might look different and how dyslexia sometimes looks this way or math disabilities. But really, I feel like we've done a great job of covering the, a really nice overview. And then I think what we'll do is let's, I'm gonna, I've got some checklists I'm going to share with you that are kind of like, how many of these does your child have? You know, and if you have more than, you know, this many, then let's talk. You know, you need to, you need to talk to somebody because it's worth investigating. And we'll do that for auditory processing, visual processing, dyslexia, dysgraphia, and dyscalculia. Abby, my cohort, says dyscalculia. I say dyscalculia. You know, it is what it is. Okay. That sounds good. Can you add nonverbal learning disorder on that list? Because that is one that always gets, well, you know, actually autism and NVLD, right? They, they well, often here's what I'm going to tell you about nonverbal learning disability. And it's funny because Abby and I were just talking about this before we got on. I feel like back when we used to diagnose learning disabilities, where we really focused on the IQ scores and the verbal versus nonverbal, nonverbal learning disability were those kids that had really high verbal skills and really weak problem solving skills, working memory, processing speed. I feel like we know more about those individual skills now, and we're doing a better job of assessing each one of those, that there's not a lot of kids being diagnosed with nonverbal learning disabilities anymore. And really, if you think about it, math is kind of a nonverbal learning disability, isn't it? Because it's not language-based, whereas dyslexia is a language-based learning disability. So, and dysgraphia is a language-based learning disability, theoretically, because it's about putting words on paper. 
So I will absolutely, I'll put something together, but I feel like nonverbal learning disability is because there's not a DSM for that. It's not an actual diagnosis. It's more of just characteristics, kind of like an executive functioning disorder, right? There's not a DSM for that. It's not really a real diagnosis, but it describes characteristics. I always say it's for the parents that aren't okay with us saying it's ADHD. So executive functioning disorder sounds better, <laughs> but it's kind of the same thing, right? But we can't use it because it's not, a, it's not, it's not, it's not, there's no DSM for it, right? And that's how nonverbal learning disability is. I feel like it describes symptoms that we're going to actually call something else, a different diagnosis, a, a real specific learning disability. That to me is more of a general term. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it totally makes sense. One of the questions that I've wanted to ask you is, I don't know what it's related to. It's related to my son. So we know that dyslexics, well, I think dyslexics struggle with rhyming. Yep. Yet, my son is a rapper and he freestyles everything. Nothing is written in advance. I don't know how he does it, but he just gets out there and it's, it's insane how he can rhyme things together and, you know, associations and connect things. And that's ADHD. But what about the rhyming part? Shouldn't he not be able to do that? Does he love it? Yeah. Interesting. Think about, think about an ADHD brain when you're interested in something. He's probably had to work 10 times harder to get that skill than anybody else, but he's going to get it because he loves it. So yeah, I'm sure it was, didn't come easy for him, but now he's got it. He's figured it out. Plus but he I has would imagine speed and everything. He's just Exactly. Fast. And he's very verbal, but I would imagine when he was, you know, five or six getting him to rhyme words, probably not as easy, which uh, is when he should have been doing it. Mm-hmm. You know- when I think about how difficult this was, Marcus has two parents he, who have the resources to pay for all of this. You know, clearly he's got privilege. We didn't want to pay for it, but we could. He's now 19 and we've only just now figured it out and still not 100% completely, right? So what happens to the kid with the single mom who's working three jobs to keep the lights on, who doesn't have the financial resources, the time, the energy, what happens to that kid? Why isn't all of this part of our education system, you know, where you go into kindergarten or first grade and everybody's tested? Wouldn't this benefit everyone since we don't all learn the same way? Everyone. You're exactly right. Here's the sad part is some of it is provided through your school, but it's fighting to get it done and it's being patient. So, and what we tell parents all the time that call and we tell them, you know, when they just cannot afford, no matter how we dice it up, they can't make it happen. Then they need to fight. They need to nag that school until they test their child because they can provide the help, right? But it's just most of the, the individuals that we assess, they don't want to wait six months or eight months or nine months for the school to do it, right? Like that's wasting time, but sometimes you just have to. But if you push, 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 and you're that squeaky wheel, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I mean, I, I just, I feel like where there's a will, there's a way. And is it the very best evaluation? I don't think so. I think the school does what they can because they've got a bazillion kids to deal with, right? They're going to give you what they can give you. And in a lot of instances, that's going to be just fine. But you got to be the squeaky wheel. You got to nag. You got to push. It's there. But, you know, don't let them say, well, your child's not failing yet. Right. That's the whole point. <laughs> we don't want to get there. <laughs> You know, and the other thing that I can say, I, I didn't tell you this yet because, you know, we hadn't talked about it, but 
I found my my son's um, old report cards from the time he was in kindergarten all the way through, all the standardized tests. And what I noticed is that he often struggled in the language, the word analysis, the reading, but every single time in social studies, you know, so he wouldn't get, you know, his percentages were like, you know, below average. But in history, geography, economics, and government, he was in the 99th percentile every single time. And I guess my point is, is that if we can, if nothing else, focus on their strengths, where is your child naturally brilliant, naturally successful, rather than focusing on where, you know, they really, really struggle, especially for those parents who, who can't afford all this testing. Right. Because when we focus on the strengths, that's where all the positive emotion is. And I just find it so interesting that literally out of the blue, all of a sudden my son is now studying economics and he loves it so much. And I realized that he's always loved it, but mm-hmm. I didn't see it because you know, well, we were focusing on the music because that's what he was focusing on at the time. But all along, when I go through from the time he was in first grade, well, second grade is when they do that standardized testing or they started it in Marcus's school. That is the area he was always off the charts in. So, and that's where he ultimately is ending up. It's it's insane to me. And that's what you really have to think about too, is that these kids are going to find their way. They're going to find their thing, the thing that they're good at, right? Just like your your kids that struggle with math aren't going into engineering. Your kids that struggle with reading aren't going to be journalists. They are going to find their thing and they're going to be wildly successful at it because they've put so much energy and attention into it. While yes, you still have to be able to read to get through school and you still have to do math to get through most of school what they're going to end up doing is not going to be related to where their struggles are. So if you just got to help them focus on those positives, right? Keep allowing them to have those wins so they can get through and get to the stuff they love. Just so long as they don't get so angry that it's just like, screw this. And, you know, then they get themselves into trouble, which is, you know, what my son says all the time, you know, if you guys weren't there all the time. I would have gotten, I would be where a lot of my friends are today, right. which I would have isn't a good given place. given up on this. Yeah. Totally. Well, Lori, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. You know that I think the world of you. So I want oh, everyone to know <laughs> where they can find you if they want to know more about you, if they want to know more about what you do, or they want to work with you. Where do they go? So Honestly, our website's probably the easiest. It has all of our contact information on there, um, and, and you can find us there. EdiagnosticLearning.com, all one word, is the best way to find us, and that will give you information about our assessments, a lot of information about learning disabilities, and then, you know, shoot us an email or give us a call. I'm happy to answer questions, or if you decide you want to go through with an assessment, I can talk to you about how that works. Perfect. So can you repeat the URL one more time? Yep. It's e-diagnosticlearning.com, all one word. Wonderful. Lori, thank you again. You're so welcome. So that's what I have for you for this week. Hey, it's me again. You know, I recorded this yesterday and I have been thinking a lot about it, meaning I recorded what you've already heard yesterday. Um, And I felt like there was more that I wanted to say, even though this has been our longest podcast episode ever. But as you can tell, I I think it's really important. So last night, 
I came across these comments that were written on Marcus's progress report, an old progress report. They were written by his kindergarten teacher, and I wanted to share them with you. So this is what she said. Marcus is enjoying school. He is so full of life and enthusiastic about every aspect of school, singing songs, reading stories, learning letter sounds, building with blocks, praying. He went to a Catholic school, using math manipulatives, etc. It is so rewarding to teach such an eager child. And you know, I remember her commenting during his parent-teacher conference that she'd never had a child with such a joy for learning. And it made me think about what we do to these kids in the name of education. Yeah, we basically suck the joy out of them, right? And that's when I realized that what I've learned most from our ongoing attempts to get Marcus properly evaluated is that if you have a child who's diagnosed with ADHD, who loved to learn and loved school, maybe he no longer does love school, and it doesn't make sense to you, it's unexplained, because that child or teenager is still always learning on their own. You know, maybe he's not doing his schoolwork, but he's finding different ways to satisfy his, her, or their love of learning. Then it's likely that there's more that's going on than just ADHD. Look, if I had to do it again and money was no object, I would have gotten Marcus tested for everything where symptoms overlapped with ADHD until I was satisfied that the hole in his learning was finally explained. And I would have done that as early as possible. That means dyslexia, especially given that it's the most common learning challenge that kids have, all kids. I would have tested him for visual processing disorder right out of the gate. We kind of sort of did, but the doctor that tested him, you know, he went through all that training. And then at the very, very bottom, it said, you know, maybe he should get a visual perceptual skills exam, but no one told us about that. So I would have done that right out of the gate. I would have had him tested for audio processing disorder, language processing disorder, dysgraphia, dyscalculia. I think I'm still mispronouncing that. Anywhere where I saw symptoms that were consistent with what Marcus was experiencing. After all, I was getting him tested anyway. I mean, how much more would it have been to add another one or two tests in? And I would have searched long and hard for someone like a Lori who can test for all of these learning challenges and doesn't just know her one area. Now, the other thing that I wanted to say is this. I'm not sitting here beating myself up about this. Look, yeah, I wish it was different, but I did the best. We did the best with the knowledge we had and with the advice we had, right? And when my son was really struggling with that calculus class, I was talking strategy with him. I felt like he really had to tell his professor what was going on. Of course, he didn't want to, right? He kept telling me, she doesn't care. This is college, mom. But ultimately, he must have agreed with me because he did just start doing it. He just start talking, started talking to her and telling her what was going on. He messaged her many times during the course of that calculus class to keep her posted. And towards the end, she kind of stopped responding, but he just kept messaging her. And I think we're both now convinced that 
that's why he passed. You know, people want to help people when they know that they're working as hard as they possibly can. And if he wouldn't have passed, if he wouldn't have said anything, I think he would have always wondered if he'd had let her know what was going on, would he have passed? You know, um, I guess the deal was he just wanted to pass that class. He wanted to never have to take it again so he could get on to the classes, the economics classes that he was so excited about. And what I realized about Marcus is over time, Marcus has developed skills. He has learned how to get what he wants in kind of unconventional ways, right? He's learned how to get what he needs. And he's learned that teachers generally want to help kids that they see are trying. So he has to show them how hard he's trying. You know, it reminds me of Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath. I think the subtitle is subtitle is Underdogs, Misfits, um, and the Art of Ah, maybe battling giants. I love Malcolm Gladwell. And there's a whole chapter on dyslexia in that book. One of the men he talks about, there's no women in that chapter, Gary Cohn is dyslexic and he became the president of Goldman Sachs. Now, whereas I don't personally agree with his politics, I do agree with what Cohn said in that book. And it's this, my upbringing allowed me to be comfortable with failure, he said. The one trait in a lot of dyslexic people I know is that by the time we got out of college, our ability to deal with failure was very highly developed. And so we look at most situations and we see much more of the upside than the downside because we're so accustomed to the downside, it doesn't even phase us. I thought about it many times, you know, I really have because it defines who I am. I wouldn't be where I am today without my dyslexia. I never would have taken that first chance. So dyslexia, in the best of cases, it really forces you to develop skills that might otherwise have never been developed. It also forces you to do things that you might never have considered. And it turns out that learning how to deal with the possibility of failure, well, guess what? It's really good preparation for a lot of careers in business. And so I think that my biggest message, you know, this is the North Star. It's me talking now, Tracy, and all of the difficulties that many of our kids have and have had in the education system. This is what Marcus told me when he was in the middle of the calculus debacle. He said, I'm not worried. It's going to be fine, mom. I don't regret the three high schools in four years or any difficulties that I've had in school Because what I have that my friends who've not struggled don't have is grit. No one is ever going to tell me that I can't do something because I know that I always can. I've proved that to myself over and over again. I may not be able to do it their way, but I will always get it done doing it my way. Come hell or high water, and maybe having to take this calculus class twice, I'll get that economics degree. I will get it done. I am enormously proud of him. So I had to come back and I had to throw this little piece in because, you know, we're all about optimism and hope around here, right? And there's so much of it, even in the middle of ADHD and all of these learning challenges. 
which I refuse to call disorders. So, as always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. If you like this episode with Lori, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too can discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews, they really help in that regard. One more thing. I don't want to forget to remind you, I am running my entirely free Five Days to Fall in Love with Your ADHD Brain Master Series beginning on October 11th. You can get more information and sign up at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash I love my brain. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again, Lori, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.